0: Good evening, guys. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here with you. This is a real privilege for me. I get to do this important work full-time, which is truly an honor. And uh, it's fun to be up here. I have family up here, so I'm staying with some family. I live in Southern California in Orange County, and I grew up there. And so, uh, But often, my travels take me up uh, to Northern California or across the country. And I really love just speaking to young people, both around my age and younger than me. I do a lot of speaking on Protestant and Catholic high school campuses because it's so important for us to be focused on equipping and training the next generation, which is you and me, um, which is those younger than us, to be able to defend life. So by raise of hands, who would agree that it's wrong to kill a baby on the day that that baby is due to be born? Meaning the mother's dilating, she's going into the hospital. good, okay, I'm glad you all agree with me. We'd have real problems if you didn't. And uh, we can talk to you later if you didn't raise your hand. Well, the reason I bring that up, friends, is that sadly many people today more than you'd think would not agree with you sadly many people in our country today and many leaders in our country would not raise their hand to identify the simple truth that it would be wrong to kill a baby the day that that baby's due to be born the day that that baby is traveling through the birth canal right before it leaves the womb and enters the world. What a simple truth that you and I recognize, yet one that is rejected by such large swaths of the American public today. Here's an example of this. Peter Singer wrote a book called Rethinking Life and Death. Now, Peter Singer is a very controversial figure. You see, Peter Singer is a philosopher and author who gets paid a lot of money to teach philosophy at a secular university campus. And he wrote a book several years ago called Rethinking Life and Death. Now, Peter Singer is known for his public support of infanticide. So I'm not talking about abortion, I'm not talking about killing babies in the womb. He's known for publicly advocating for the moral permissibility of killing children as long as they're under one year old. That's what he's famous for. And here's what he says in his book, Rethinking Life and Death. He says, human babies are not born self-aware or capable of grasping their lives over time. They are not persons. Hence, their lives would seem to be no more worthy of protection than the life of a fetus. So you see, Peter Singer didn't just advocate for abortion, he just advocated for infanticide, for the killing of babies after they're already born, writhing on the table or in the doctor's hands, kill them because they're not persons. Now, unfortunately, this is not just an ideological problem. This is not just a problem out there on the university campuses with these crazy people, with these crazy ideas in their ivory towers and armchair philosophers who just talk about how we can kill persons. These are not just ideological problems. These are practical problems because Peter Singer is not an isolated incident. He is representative of many people in our country who make legislative decisions about the future of our country who think the same way as Peter Singer. For example, a few months ago, this year, earlier this year in in the state of New York, New York legislators proposed and passed a piece of legislation called the Reproductive Health Act, a euphemism if there ever was one. You see, what the Reproductive Health Act did, friends, was it legalized abortion in the state of New York to the day of birth. So you're pregnant, you're dilating, it's time to deliver, you change your mind. It's perfectly moral, or perfectly legal, rather, in the state of New York, to stick a needle into that baby's brain, suck the brains out, pull it out, and call it reproductive health care. Second thing this piece of legislation did in the state of New York was it removed abortions from the Penal code. What does that mean? Well, what that means is that if a man murders a pregnant woman, he will only be charged with one count of murder: the murder of the mother. That's part of what this bill did in the state of New York, and it allowed non-doctors to perform abortions, meaning more people can kill babies and make money off of doing it. So this is not just a philosophical ideological problem on our campuses. This is what people in the state of New York, who were writing laws, believe. And then in February of this year, there was a piece of legislation on the U.S. Senate floor called the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. It was proposed by Senator Ben Sass from Nebraska. And here's what this piece of legislation said. It said, hey, if a baby's born, you can't kill it. Now, infanticide is already illegal in the United States of America, but there's been lots of incidences where abortionists, after failing to kill the baby in the womb, and the baby's now born, will then kill the newborn. So this piece of legislation was proposed in order to make it more difficult for those incidents to occur, to propose harsh penalties very harsh penalties on people who work at abortion clinics who don't report incidents like that. It also would charge an abortionist with the murder of a human being who kills a baby after it's born, as it should be. Now, seems like a pretty reasonable bill, huh? By the way, President Bush proposed and passed a bill like this when he was president, and it got universal bipartisan support. This new bill proposed in February was just a little bit more intense. It it proposed harsher penalties on abortionists who didn't report that a baby was born during a failed abortion and harsher penalties on killing that baby. Lastly, the bill said you, you had to immediately transfer that baby who was born during a failed abortion to a hospital and give the baby the same level of medical attention and care that you would give any other baby born in normal circumstances. Seems pretty uncontroversial, right? and all the pro-choice legislators under the Bush administration voted for the version of this bill back then. It gets re-proposed now with more measures to save more lives and harsher penalties on those who would take life, and only two Democrats voted for it. Now, I'm not here to get political. We're here to get equipped to defend life, but I just want to give you the reality of the situation in our country today. Every single Republican voted for this bill, and only two Democrats voted for it. So it didn't get the necessary votes to pass, and so it didn't pass. A bill that was literally an anti-infanticide bill, saying, you can't kill babies after the baby's born, didn't pass the US Senate in DC. Because those legislators think just like Peter Singer. They think that life is disposable, That life is not inherently valuable and that even newborn babies, if they're an inconvenience and in the way of living the type of life that you want to live, can simply be disposed of. So ideas have consequences, friends, and bad ideas have victims. What we believe about the world, what we believe about one another, and what we believe about human value impacts how we live and how we treat one another. Ideas do not happen in a vacuum. They impact human beings and the decisions that we make that impact one another. So why do I bring all this up? Why do I paint this grisly picture that's very real of where our country finds itself today? Because I want to make sure that you're prepared to engage a culture of death, a post-Christian secular society that does not share your Christian worldview, that does not share your views on human equality, So that when you're in the marketplace of ideas, whether that's on a high school campus, a college campus, or simply in the marketplace making money and supporting yourself and your family, that you know how to be a voice for the unborn. You know how to defend life and speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. So we're going to prep you to engage this evening so that you're equipped to help save unborn life and change minds and change hearts. And this is so significant and this is so important because the world that we live in does not value the lives of unborn children. In fact, many celebrate a mother's right to pay a physician to dismember her child. And then we call it reproductive health care, women's rights, bodily autonomy. When this Reproductive Health Act was passed in the state of New York, friends, the New York Senate floor stood up and cheered and clapped as Governor Cuomo signed this death sentence for unborn children. So when I say the world is literally cheering for abortion, I literally mean that. And how are you going to engage that type of culture that is not going to be convinced by a biblical argument because they don't share your Christian worldview. How can you reach across the aisle and engage in gracious and persuasive conversations to win people over, to, yes, the gospel, but also to the beauty of life and protecting life at all stages, particularly in the womb where it is currently legal to kill unborn children. So we as Christians need knowledge on how to engage in the battle for life against the forces of darkness. So friends, to be prepared to engage with this type of culture... We have to be clear on four key questions, okay? And I'm going to make this really simple for all of us. We're going to look at these four questions. I'm going to answer them for you in what I believe will be a very accessible and repeatable manner so that you can then replicate this type of content as you seek to be a voice for the unborn. The first question is, what is the unborn? The second question is, what is abortion? The third question is, what makes humans valuable? And the fourth question is, what is our duty? as ambassadors for Christ. So firstly, what is the unborn? This is the most important and central question in the issue of abortion. And to illustrate why this question is so important, I wanna tell you a brief anecdote. Okay, I want you to expand your imagination with me. Hopefully Hopefully you've had enough coffee this evening. Hopefully you'll remain awake. I'll try to be engaging. So here's what I want you to imagine. I want you to imagine that you're standing at your kitchen sink cleaning dishes one evening, okay? Now, imagine that you've married the man or woman of your dreams, You have a little townhome in Tacoma, and you're standing at your kitchen sink cleaning dishes one evening. Now, you're cleaning dishes by hand because for some reason God hasn't smiled on you with the dishwasher yet. So as you're standing there cleaning your dishes, your three-year-old toddler, yes, you have a child as well, walks up behind you, and you hear your three-year-old toddler say these words, Mommy or Daddy, can I kill this? Now, your back is turned. And all you hear are these words. What is going to be the first question out of your mouth in response to your toddler's question, can I kill this? What is it? Good, you guys are awake and sharp. Exactly. Because if you turned around and little Timmy was holding a cockroach, dad might say, here son, here's a hammer. Don't tell mom. But if your son was holding the neighbor kitty, unless you're a vindictive cat hater, you have deeper problems. And if he's holding his little sister by the throat, you need counseling. So you couldn't answer the question, can I kill this, until you answered the question, what is it? Kill what? So friends, we cannot answer the question, can we kill the unborn? Whatever the unborn is, until we first answer the question, what is the unborn? Gray Kokel, a Christian apologist and author, says that if the unborn are not human, okay, if they're not one of us, no justification for abortion is necessary. Do you follow? You don't need to justify abortion if the thing being aborted is not a human. If it's not one of us, nobody cares. But then he says, however, if the unborn are human, no justification for abortion is adequate. No justification for abortion that you offer in defense of killing unborn children suffices or is adequate if the thing being killed is indeed a human being who shares our human nature and our human value. So the entire abortion debate turns on the question, what is the unborn? If it's not a human and it's not one of us, then abortions are no different than clipping your fingernails. But if it's a baby, if it's a human, now we're faced with a different type of question, aren't we? Now we're faced with a moral question. How do we treat human beings who share our common human nature? Once you understand the importance of this one question, you can use it in conversations on the issue of abortion to clear confusion on an issue that you've been told is a deeply, deeply complex moral issue. And you can use it to drive the debate back to the only question that matters, which is what is the unborn? So for example, perhaps your pro-choice friend tells you Pro-lifer, how dare you tell a woman she doesn't have the right to obtain an abortion? Because that's a private decision. How dare you intrude in her life and the private decisions that her and her husband or boyfriend or partner are the only ones entitled to make? Very well. You smile and graciously respond with this question. Should we allow parents to kill their toddlers as long as they do so in the privacy of their own homes? How dare you intrude in the private decisions that families make in their living rooms regarding whether they want to rip the the arms off of their toddlers? Your pro-choice friend goes, Oh my gosh, I can't believe you suggest that! And you say, Why not? And they say, Because toddlers are humans, you can't kill toddlers! Ah, so apparently the issue was not privacy, The issue was, what is the unborn? Because the humanity that your pro-choice friend is granting to the toddler, he's denying that humanity to the unborn child. So the issue was never about privacy, was it? The issue is what is the unborn? Because the toddlers are human, and so you say you can't kill it. Well, what is the unborn then? Are they a human, or are they just insensate blobs of tissue that we can gently suction out of the womb? What is the unborn? Here's another example. Your pro-choice friend might tell you, pro-lifer, how dare you tell a woman she doesn't have the right to obtain an abortion because she might not have the financial capacity to bear that child, pay the hospital bills, raise that child, provide for that child. Very well. You graciously respond with this question. Should we allow parents to kill their toddlers when they get expensive? Well, no, I can't believe you'd suggest that. Why not? Because toddlers are humans. Ah, so again, It appears that the issue is not about privacy, and it's not about financial difficulties or financial capacity. The issue is, what is the unborn? Because the humanity that your pro-choice friend is granting to the toddler, he's denying that humanity to the unborn child. So what is the unborn? That is the central question in the issue of abortion. And friends, the burden of proof is not on you to prove that the unborn is a human person like you and I. But I'm going to show you how you can do that tonight. But the burden of proof is actually not on you. The burden of proof is on those claiming that we can kill whatever's in the womb. If you're going to advocate for the killing of something, then you better have prepared evidence that the thing we're killing is not a person. So for those who say, well, we don't know when life begins. So let's just have abortion for all nine months of pregnancy. Whoa if you don't know when life begins, shouldn't we err on the side of caution that maybe it begins at conception until we have further evidence that it doesn't begin at conception? Ronald Reagan, one of our uh, conservatives and Christians' favorite presidents, of course, he, he, he talked about the abortion issue this way. He said, imagine that you're on a hunting trip with a good friend of yours and you're tracking this deer And your friend and you take different hunting paths. You're you're trying to find this deer. Maximize the likelihood that you'll find it. So you guys take different paths. And then an hour later, you hear some rustling in the bushes off to your right. Now, you don't know if that sound is being caused by the deer you've been tracking or your hunting buddy. Do you shoot into the bushes? No, of course not. Because you don't know what's on the other side. You don't know what you're killing. So if we don't know when life begins, we ought to err on the side of caution and not kill it. So the burden of proof is actually not even on pro-life individuals like you and I to prove that the unborn is a human being. It's on those who advocate for the killing of whatever is in the womb to prove that it's not a human being. But we are prepared to answer the question, what is the unborn? We are prepared to, answer, to provide proof that they are human persons like you and I from the moment of conception. But if we are going to be prepared to engage as ambassadors for Christ and ambassadors for the unborn, we firstly have to answer the question, what is the unborn? Now let's answer that question together. Pro-life individuals make their case for the humanity of the unborn child by appealing to the science of embryology. We don't make political arguments. We don't even make religious arguments. Though we are going to look at some Bible verses this evening and ground the abortion discussion in the larger theological framework. But pro-life individuals don't actually appeal to the Bible to make their case. Why? Because if you're trying to convince a pro-choice secular humanist that they should be pro-life, are they going to be convinced because you cited Psalm 139? No. Because if they don't believe in the authority of Scripture... Why are they going to become pro-life if the only reason you gave for being pro-life is what scripture said? So again, we're going to look at some Bible verses later, but we're going to start with science because everyone loves science, right? It's objective, it's fact-based, and we can all agree on what science says. Well, unfortunately, we can't all agree on what science says, but we all know what science teaches. So this is what the science of embryology teaches us, and it's going to answer the question, what is the unborn, okay? Okay. The science of embryology teaches us that from the earliest stages of human development, that means the moment of conception, the unborn child is a distinct, living, and whole human being. Distinct, living, and whole. I didn't come up with these terms. You will find these terms to describe human beings in any embryology textbook on any college campus in the country, unless they've selectively chosen pro-choice propaganda rhetoric in their biology courses. Otherwise, this is what embryology has taught us for decades. What is embryology? It's just the study of the embryo. It's the study of human beings in their earliest stages of development in their mother's wombs. They are distinct, living, and whole human beings. What do those words mean? Distinct means separate, unique, different. Now you've all heard the mantra from those who support abortion, my body my choice. You know what mantra we've never heard from the pro-choice movement and that we'll never hear? Our body's my choice or two bodies my choice. Because as soon as we admit that there's another body involved, we're held morally responsible for how we treat that second body. So those who support abortion never want to acknowledge that there are in fact two bodies. So the mantra becomes my body, my choice. Now, is that true? Is it true that there's only one body involved? Well, according to the science of embryology, no. According to the science of embryology, the unborn child is distinct, separate. Now, if unborn children in their mother's wombs are part of their mother's bodies, some very strange conclusions follow, friends, such as that apparently pregnant women have 20 fingers, 20 toes, two brains, two heartbeats, two different blood types, two different DNA codes. Oh, and if she's pregnant with a boy, I guess pregnant women have male genitalia now. Because if it's part of her body, then any parts of the baby are part of her. But we recognize that the conclusions are ludicrous. So what follows? The unborn child is not part of the mother's body. They are distinct. They have their own unique DNA code and they are simply living in their mother's body. Distinct and living. Living means that dead things don't grow. The unborn child is directing his or her own internal growth from within. So I have a 18-month-old almost. So I watched my wife be pregnant. Here's something that never happened. My wife never woke me up in the middle of the night saying, Babe, I forgot to tell our baby to grow. Hurry, come here, come here, tell him to grow. And now we all laugh at that, and we should. And why do we laugh at that? Because we recognize that pregnant women do not will their unborn children to grow. They develop themselves from within. That's why when women are pregnant, they can sleep, some not as well as others, but they can actually sleep while their babies develop themselves. That means they're living. Distinct living and whole. Not a hole in the ground, W-H-O-L-E. Now what does whole mean? What's a whole human being? Are you a whole human being? Is a toddler a whole human being? What, what does that mean? Well it means that the unborn child from the moment of conception has everything they need to realize their full growth and development at a later stage. It doesn't mean that the unborn child is fully developed. It doesn't mean that they're capable of laughing at your joke. It doesn't mean that they're capable of making a joke. It doesn't mean that they're capable of algebra. It means that they have everything they need biologically from the moment of conception to realize their full growth and development as a later stage. So I'm 27. I'm not 30. Do I have everything I need in my biologically coordinated human system to realize my development as a 30-year-old? Yes. Now, men don't reach their mental peak until their 40s. Some of you ladies are saying, praise God, (laughs) it all makes sense now. So men who are under 40 here have not realized their full level of mental development. Does that mean that they're less valuable or less of a person now? Again, maybe some of the ladies think yes, but no, right? We, We have an equal value regardless of that. But that's what it means to be a whole human being. It means that you have everything you need to realize your full growth and development at a later stage. Here's what I mean by this. I want you to imagine for a second that you guys have just won tickets to a safari excursion into the deserts of Africa. So you get to get flown out in first class, then you get to get on this really tricked out, air conditioned, nice tour guide vehicle, and you get taken out into the the wild plains of Africa. And so you want to see African wildlife in its natural habitat. So you're cruising along, and all of you guys have brought your, your various digital cameras, your smartphones to photograph wildlife in its natural habitat. But one of you kicks it really old school, and you brought one of those Polaroid cameras. Remember, it spits the photo out as soon as you take it. Some of you are too young to remember that. You're like, what? But, I mean, it's actually coming back around like all hipster things do. And so, and you remember, you shake the photo, and it starts to appear, right? So one of you brought a Polaroid camera. So you're traveling along, and then the tour guide vehicle tells you over the intercom, hey, we're entering an area where a black jaguar was sighted last week. Now, black jaguars are rarely seen and even more rarely photographed. They're actually one of the most elusive beasts on Earth. There's very few photos of them. So you guys start getting pumped, and you're like, well, I want to get a picture of a black jaguar. But after a couple hours, dude, you're a millennial. You don't have patience for this. And so you, you, know, you get on Instagram, or you put a movie on the screen. I guess some of you guys are Gen Z. I apologize. And, uh, and so, and, but then the person with the Polaroid camera has, has a longer patience uh, than everyone else. And so they're keeping their eyes glued to the window waiting to see this black jaguar. Well, to that person's luck, right after sunset... Right around twilight, where you can still kind of see what's going on outside, a black jaguar sprints out from the bushes in front of your, uh, in front of your vehicle and leaps across the path in front of your vehicle, and you snap a picture of him airborne. The, the, by the time the jaguar lands on the other side of the path, the photo gets spit out, you turn around, he's gone, and you start waving your photo, telling your friends, look, look, look! At that point, I reach behind your right shoulder, shoulder I tear the photo out of your hands, I rip it up into little pieces, and I throw it out the window. Now, some of the ladies were looking at me like, I actually did that, (laughs) and I'm sorry. What if if I responded to your jaw-dropped anger by saying, yo, 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 chill out, man. That was not a picture of a black jaguar. That was just a black smudgy on a white piece of paper. Now, you would probably respond by saying, Seth, what are you talking about? The jaguar was already there. We just couldn't see him yet. Everything that was necessary for that photo to realize its full development and growth was already present when the photo got spit out. We just couldn't see him yet. That's what I mean when I say that from the earliest stages of development, the unborn child is a distinct living and whole human being. And the, and every, the only thing necessary for the unborn child to realize his or her full growth and development is time. But he or she has everything they need to realize their full growth and development from the moment of conception, even if we can't see them yet. That's what the science of embryology teaches us. You were a human being from the moment of conception as a distinct living and whole person participating in the human species. So, if we are going to be prepared to engage the culture of death and be a voice for the unborn children in our midst, we firstly have to answer the question, What is the unborn? And we answer that with the science of embryology. They are human beings like you and I. This is plain, undisputed scientific fact. Secondly, we have to answer the question, what is abortion? Because as wonderful as it is to talk about prenatal development and who the baby is in the womb and who we were in our mother's womb, I wouldn't be here this evening if it wasn't for the reality that one million unborn children are ripped limb from limb every year in the United States of America in a nation that was founded on the right to life, and then we call it reproductive health care. So we have to answer the question, what is abortion? Put simply, friends, I'm going to define abortion this evening as the intentional killing of the unborn child. Now, why do I define it that way? Because abortions are not accidents what would that be called? A miscarriage. But abortions are not accidents. They are intentional. You have to schedule it. You have to show up. They have to dilate your cervix. Then they have to stick a vacuum or forceps up your birth canal and either suction your baby into oblivion or rip it limb from limb if it's too developed to fit through the vacuum. Does that sound accidental? No, because abortion is intentional. We have to define our terms, we need to define our words. Because some people think of abortion and they think of an an obscure medical procedure that gently suctions out the contents of the womb. But then other people think of the greatest human rights violation in human history. So we have to be very clear with our terms. That is the proper definition of abortion. Now, it is very, very, very difficult to communicate who the unborn child is and the horror of abortion if we never see the unborn child, if we never see abortion. Otherwise, we're just talking in words. We're just talking about concepts until we look at our unborn neighbors and we see what abortion is and does to them. There was a reason why all of us were shown Holocaust imagery and slavery, imagery in high school. We didn't have to get permission slips. We didn't have to get parental consent because we understood as a culture, we need to see what we did to Jews in Germany and to African Americans in the United States of America. And it was right for us to see the atrocities that our forefathers committed against these individuals. Similarly, on the issue of abortion, we need to see who these unborn children are, and we need to see what abortion is and does to unborn children. And this is important because it's going to prove the humanity of the baby. For those who continue to maintain that abortion just removes an insensate blob of tissue, we can show them imagery of who the baby is in the womb and say, does that look like a blob of tissue to you? No, that's a human being who shares our common human nature and value. So we're going to give you an opportunity this evening to view imagery of the baby in the womb in the first trimester which is the first three months. Over 90% of abortions, friends, are performed in the first trimester. And it's the trimester in which there's the most public support for abortion. So not only do the most amount of abortions happen in the first trimester, the most Americans support abortion in the first trimester. It's where the most children are killed in the first trimester because people think, oh, it's, it's just a tissue. Well, you're gonna see what the baby looks like in the first trimester. And then we're going to give you the opportunity to view what abortion does to that baby. And we're going to give you time to opt out of the presentation if you'd like. And there's instrumental music, so you won't even hear anything you don't want to hear. So you'll be plenty prepared um, beforehand, before we show the second clip, if you choose to avert your gaze or close your eyes. We're not pressuring anyone into watching the second clip this evening. So firstly, let's start with the prenatal imagery clip that shows the baby in his or her mother's womb in the first trimester. And we're going to hit the light so you can see better.
1: A touch to the mouth area causes the embryo to reflexively withdraw its head. The external ear is beginning to take shape. By six weeks blood cell formation is underway in the liver where lymphocytes are now present. This type of white blood cell is a key part of the developing immune system. The diaphragm, the primary muscle used in breathing, is largely formed by six weeks. A portion of the intestine now protrudes temporarily into the umbilical cord. This normal process, called physiologic herniation, makes room for other developing organs in the abdomen. At six weeks, the hand plates develop a subtle flattening Brain waves have been recorded as early as six weeks and two days. Nipples appear along the sides of the trunk shortly before reaching their final location on the front of the chest. By six and a half weeks, the elbows are distinct, the fingers are beginning to separate and hand movement can be seen. Bone formation, called ossification, begins within the clavicle, or collarbone, and the bones of the upper and lower jaw.
0: See the baby's heart beating? That, friends, is our unborn neighbor. And sadly, today in the United States of America, the womb has become the most dangerous place to be as a human being. A mother's womb has become far more dangerous to live in than any dangerous slum in Chicago than Skid Row in L.A. at midnight or running through Central Park at 2 a.m. The womb has become the most dangerous place to be as a human being. And these are our unborn neighbors created in the image of God who share our common human nature and dignity, and they are being wiped out through legalized abortion, which in our country has taken over 60 million babies' lives since 1973, when seven unelected judges decided the future for unborn life in our country. So we're here to talk about this reality and how we can respond to this reality. Part of that is understanding the nature of abortion. It's very difficult to convince others of our position. If we don't show them the thing that we oppose, So we're going to give you an opportunity now to see what God sees a million times a year and the results of abortion. We want to forewarn you that this imagery is graphic and disturbing. It's graphic and disturbing because abortion is graphic and disturbing. This is not pro-life propaganda. This is not doctored images. This is the reality of abortion. As I mentioned, there's instrumental music. So if you choose to close your eyes or look down at your feet, you won't even hear anything you don't wanna hear. You have the complete freedom to opt out of this presentation entirely. But I would encourage you to look so that we know what's happening to our unborn neighbors. You know, the psalmist says that God knew you, that he saw your unformed substance in the dark of the womb, and that God knit you together in your mother's womb and that you're fearfully and wonderfully made. He said that my frame was not hidden from you when I was woven together. You saw my unformed substance. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Those wonderfully complex, valuable human beings are being dismembered a million times a year in our country. And this January will mark 47 years of legalized abortion. The result has been over 60 million babies killed, over 60 million women's lives effectively ruined, 60 million fathers who either did nothing or pressured their girlfriends or wives to abort or some who pleaded with their wives and girlfriends to not abort but couldn't do anything because they were silenced because it's just a woman's issue. This is child sacrifice like we've never seen before. And in the Old Testament, God says, to his people as they were sacrificing their children to Moloch. He says that it never even entered my mind that you would do this. Abortion is child sacrifice. It's the sacrifice of unborn children to the gods of convenience, finance, convenience, and selfishness, and education. Call it what you want. Satan doesn't care the name of the God that you sacrifice your children to. It could be Moloch or it could be selfishness. The end result is children sacrificed so that we can live the type of lives that we want. And this is the reality. So friends, if this is part of your story, if there's an abortion in your past, we don't, we don't speak about this issue to shame you or condemn you. We speak about it to bring moral and spiritual clarity to the issue of abortion. But if this is part of your story or the story of someone you know, I want to remind you of what I believe Jesus would say to you. And that is that Jesus is just as eager to forgive the sin of abortion as any other sin. Abortion is not a blacklist sin, there is healing and forgiveness in Christ. And if the story of Scripture has taught us anything, It's taught us that there is no one who is too far removed from the grace, healing, and forgiveness of Christ through the cross. And again, if this is part of your story, I would remind you of the story of King David. Here's a man that God called a man after his own heart. But King David had quite the speed bump in his spiritual journey, didn't he? Many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Rather than fighting on the front lines with his soldiers like he should have been, he was being a lazy bum hanging out on his roof and goes, oh, look, there's a woman taking a shower. I think I'll just enjoy this. Actually, I know I think I want her to come into my room. David and Bathsheba had sexual intercourse. A baby was conceived from that union. And now, in order to hide and cover up his sexual sins so nobody finds out, King David arranges the death of an innocent human being. Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, he arranges to have him killed so nobody finds out that he slept with Bathsheba and committed adultery. Friends, abortion does arrange the death of an innocent human being. And whether it was to cover up and hide sexual sin or not, the end result is a dead, innocent baby, just as the end result was a dead, innocent Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. And when Nathan the prophet confronted David regarding his sin, David immediately repented. And God renewed David and called him a man after his own heart. But there were consequences to his sin. That son, that child that David and Bathsheba conceived died. And David said regarding his son that died, he said that my son will not return to me, but I will go to him. So friends, if abortion is part of your story, if you repent and ask for the forgiveness of Jesus, which he purchased for you through his blood shed on the cross, then you will see your baby in heaven again one day, and your child is seated on the lap of Christ in glory, awaiting you to join him or her. That is the hope and forgiveness and healing available in Jesus for those who have had an abortion. So know that, hear that, and accept that. And know that the pastors at this church would love to walk through a journey of healing with you if that's part of your story. So if we are going to be prepared to engage as ambassadors for Christ on the battlefield of abortion, which is child sacrifice, we firstly have to answer the question, what is the unborn? Who are they? And we can use that question to clear perceived confusion on the issue of abortion. We then answer that question by looking at the science of embryology, which tells us that they're a human being from the moment of conception. Secondly, we answer the question, what is abortion? It's the intentional killing of unborn children. And we've seen what abortion does to our unborn neighbors. Thirdly, we have to answer the question, what makes humans valuable? Why should we care about this at all? Now, this is important, friends, because science cannot tell us how to live. In other words, you were never in a biology class that said, based off of your human DNA, don't steal candy. Because science just gives us biological facts about who we are, right? It doesn't prescribe moral behaviors. Now, science gives us facts that we know that are helpful in making moral decisions, but science doesn't tell us how to live. So we have to turn to philosophy, to answer questions of value. What makes humans valuable in the first place? And why should we treat all human beings, whether born or unborn, as equal in dignity and worth? Now, we as Christians, we have an answer to that, right? We look to the Bible to answer the question, what makes humans valuable? But those in the post-Christian secular society who don't share a Christian worldview are not going to be convinced by biblical arguments. But firstly, let's look briefly at what we as Christians believe about human value. What does the Bible teach about human value? The Bible teaches that human value is intrinsic and not instrumental. What those words mean is that your value as a human being is part of who you are. It's in nature of being human to have value. In other words, you can't be human and not have value. Does that make sense? That's why we understand that there's a difference between eating a hamburger and a Harold Burger. There's a difference between eating a hamburger and eating a person. We actually treat those differently. We don't penalize people who eat animals, but we do penalize people who eat people. Why? Because we recognize that there's something intrinsically valuable about being human. And we all understand that. We all get that. Unfortunately, a large majority or large swaths of the American population don't think that unborn children are intrinsically valuable. But the Bible's clear that human value is intrinsic and not instrumental, meaning it's not based on what you can or cannot do. It's not instrumental. It's not based on how athletic you are, how musical you are, how artistic you are, how tall you are. It's not based on any of those things. It's based on the fact that you share a common human nature. Now, the Christian worldview and biblical response to this is that we explain human value in the imago Dei, right? In the fact that all human beings are what created in the image of God. And we see this at the beginning of the human story. In Genesis 127, we read, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female." He created them. So because human beings bear the image of God, because the creator of the universe who breathes out stars also breathes life into the human beings that he creates and knits together in their mother's wombs. The all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, all-good creator of the world created you. That's why human beings have value. And so, because human beings have value, Scripture strictly forbids the shedding of innocent blood. Why? Because the blood being shed is the blood of human beings created in the image of God. Exodus 23 7 says, Keep far from a false charge, and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. Do not kill the innocent. Matthew 5.21, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Don't kill the innocent. Don't murder. Why? Because those people bear the image of God like you and I. That's the biblical answer to the question, what makes humans valuable? But how are you going to communicate the truth of the unborn's value to those who are not churched? How are you going to communicate your pro-life position that abortion is an indefensible act of violence that takes the life of a defenseless, unborn human being without appealing to Bible verses to make your case to a world that will have no respect for a biblical argument? Well, here's how we're going to make that case. We're going to make a philosophical case for the human equality of the unborn children in our midst. And you'll notice, that this argument will enable you to persuasively communicate your pro-life position without citing Bible verses to make your case, but you'll be affirming biblical truth nonetheless. So here's the philosophical case for the equal value of unborn children, here it is. There is no essential difference between the embryonic human being that you once were and the young adult that you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Here, is, here it is in even simple, more simple terms. There's no essential difference between you, the embryo, and you, the adult, that makes it okay to kill you, the embryo. Does that make sense? Now, are there differences between the six-week embryonic photo that your mother still has of you on the fridge and you sitting here today? Yes, there's clearly differences. <laughs> and if we held up a picture of six-week you in the womb and 16-year-old you, there's obviously differences the case I'm making is that none of those differences are relevant in determining human value. None of the differences between unborn people and born people are relevant in determining human value and in determining who has value or not. Now, it's important to examine the differences between you in the womb and you here today, because as it turns out, friends, the differences between Unborn you and born you are the exact differences that abortion supporters point to in order to justify abortion. Pro choice individuals frequently point to the differences between unborn you and born you, and they use those differences to argue for the permissibility of abortion. So here are the four differences between embryo U and adult U. And we're going to examine those differences by utilizing the acronym SLED, S-L-E-D. Now, SLED is a very, very difficult concept for me in Southern California because I don't even know how to spell snow. But SLED is a very accessible concept for you guys here in Tacoma, Washington. So you might grasp this better than me. The S in the acronym SLED stands for size. Yes, it's true. The unborn child is smaller than the newborn child. Just like newborn children are smaller than toddlers, and toddlers are smaller than teenagers. Just like me, at six foot three, am generally larger than the rest of the audience. Does that mean that I have more human value than those of you under six three because I'm larger? Of course not. What a, what a ludicrous suggestion. Now men are generally larger than women. Do we like where that reasoning leads? Unfortunately, that difference has been used by lots of barbaric men to justify atrocious acts against women. But size has no relevance to human value, does it? But what do those people, what do those who support abortion say about the unborn? Oh, you mean that small little blob of tissue that you can't even see at two weeks? How is that a person? Dehumanizing the unborn and justifying their slaughter because they're smaller. But if we reject size as a justification to kill born people, we have to also reject size as a justification to kill unborn people. So size is the first difference between unborn you and born you. The second is L, level of development. Yes, it's true, the unborn child is less developed than the newborn child, just like the newborn child is less developed than the toddler, and the toddler is less developed than the teenager. Just like your parents are more developed than you in virtue of being older, just like your younger siblings are less developed than you in virtue of being younger. Does that mean that it's more wrong to kill grandpa than grandson because grandpa's more developed? What a ludicrous suggestion. But what do, those, what do those people say who support abortion? They say, well, you know, the unborn can't feel pain, it's not conscious, it's not viable, it doesn't have brain waves that are detectable. Those are all things that come along with what? A level of development dehumanizing the unborn and justifying their slaughter because they haven't developed to the level that you think human beings need to develop to in order to have value and a right to life. What a morally bankrupt worldview. And if we reject killing less developed toddlers and we reject that difference as a justification for killing toddlers, we have to also reject the difference of level of development as a justification for killing unborn people because unborn people and born people share a common human nature. And if you care about human equality, then all human beings have to be protected whether they're in the womb or outside the womb. So size, level of development, E stands for environment. Environment just means location, where you find yourself. Yes, it's true, the unborn child is located in a very unique environment, correct? His or her mother's womb. By the way, the womb is the location that the baby is supposed to be in. It's not an accident that the baby got there. That's the natural location that the unborn child is supposed to be in. Shocker, you only got here because you used to be in a womb. All human beings start in a womb. There's never been a human being that didn't start in the womb. That's where we begin. So where one is has no bearing on who one is. In fact, the distance that I just traveled is a significantly further distance than the unborn child travels through the birth canal during childbirth. I just moved way further distance than the baby travels from the womb through the birth canal into the doctor's waiting hands, which is, by the way, about a six-inch journey. And our country says... That it's not only a legal right, it's a celebratory moral right to rip that child limb from limb simply because they're six inches away in their mother's womb. And you can do it to the day of birth because hashtag women's rights. Where one is has no bearing on who one is. If it was wrong to kill me over there, it's wrong to kill me here. If it's wrong to kill the baby right after it comes out of the womb, it's wrong to kill that baby six inches away. Where one is has no bearing on who one is. So size, level of development, environment or location, and the D stands for dependency or degree of dependency. Degree of dependency. This means how dependent you are on someone or something else for your life. Yes, it's true. The unborn child is very dependent on the mother, correct? And in the first trimester and the early second trimester, that unborn child cannot survive apart from the mother. Now, luckily, Medical and scientific advancements are enabling us to save prematurely born babies earlier and earlier. What does that mean? That means that because of medical advancements, we can make unborn children not dependent on their mothers earlier and earlier and earlier. But what's one of the arguments that we hear for abortion? Many pro-choice individuals say that abortion is wrong once the baby can survive outside the womb. Once the baby is not dependent on the mother. This is one of the many arguments for abortion. Many pro-choice people will, will acknowledge that, okay, abortion is wrong once the baby's independent, can survive outside the womb. Okay, very well. Then explain to me how a pregnant woman at 21 weeks in New York City has a baby that's valuable. Because she has access to medical advancements that could save her baby if it was born at 21 weeks. But if that same woman, pregnant at 21 weeks, found herself in Bosnia or a dangerous third world country, I guess that same baby doesn't have value. It's at the same level of development. It's the same pregnant mother. But that baby's not a person that doesn't have value and can be ripped limb from limb because it couldn't survive outside the womb. So human rights, just, just, they just change based off of your access to medical advancements? What a strange world! And we recognize that strain because we recognize that human value is not based on your dependency, is it? It's not based on your ability to survive apart from someone else's help. Now, if human value is based on your dependency, like people argue the unborns is. They say the unborn doesn't have value if it's dependent on the mother. We run into some very problematic moral conclusions, such as that born people, I guess, who are dependent on insulin, heart pacemakers, kidney machines, And life support are all non-persons and can be killed as such because they're dependent on something without which they cannot continue to live. Just like the unborn child is dependent on the mother without whom he or she cannot continue to live. Do we like where that reasoning leads? We shouldn't. These are the four differences between unborn you and born you. Size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency. And none of those differences are morally relevant because all born people differ in the same way. The unborn differs from us in much the same way that we differ from one another. Most of you are smaller than me. Some of you are less developed than me. Some of you are more developed than me because you're, you're older. We all differ in location right now because we're all in different locations. And some of us differ in our degree of dependency. Some of you are still dependent on your parents to pay the bills. You're dependent. I guess we can rip you limb from limb because you're dependent. But this is what people argue about abortion for the unborn child. Some of you are not dependent at all. You pay all your own bills, you pay for everything, and you're independent. Does that mean that you have more value? No, of course not. But these, so if we reject killing born people for size, level of development, location, and dependency, we have to equally reject killing unborn people for their size, level of development, location, and dependency. Does that make sense? Because human value begins at the moment of conception because all human beings have a shared common human nature and value. That's how we can communicate the truth of the unborn's value to those who don't share our Christian worldview. Now, did I cite any Bible verses to make my case for the value of the unborn right now? No. I just made a human equality argument. But notice, I'm affirming biblical truths nonetheless. That's how we can engage with a post-Christian secular society who stands up and cheers and claps for the killing of nine-month babies in their mother's wombs. So if we are going to engage, we have to answer the question, what is the unborn? We answer that question with the science of embryology. We have to answer the question, what is abortion? It's the intentional killing of the unborn child, and we've seen what it does. We then have to answer the question, um, what makes humans valuable? Biblically, we know that human value is based in the image of God, but basically, All human beings should be able to acknowledge that if you care about human equality, that human equality has to be applied to the unborn. And the only differences between the unborn and the born are size, level of development, location, and dependency. Lastly, we have to be able to answer the question, what is our duty? What is our duty? as those who call on the name of Christ, who, who are disciples and ambassadors for Christ. What is our duty in the face of the largest and greatest human rights violation in human history? Well, I believe that the parable of the Good Samaritan is one of the best examples in Scripture of a Christian's duty to love their neighbor. And you guys know the parable of the Good Samaritan, but I'll briefly recount it for us. So there's a man, he's traveling on the road, and he ends up getting jumped, beaten, robbed, left for dead on the side of the road. Luke's gospel says that the robbers left him on the side of the road half dead. So the guy's almost dead. He's bleeding out. He's a bleeding victim. And two different religious men walk by, a Levite and a priest, men who apparently knew the law of God, who knew that you're supposed to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbors yourself. They were religious leaders. They would have known this. And what did they do when they saw a neighbor who needed their love. They walked by on the other side of the road to avoid the bleeding victim. Maybe the Levite and the priest felt compassion, but they didn't show compassion. It was the Good Samaritan who Luke's gospel tells us, when he saw the bleeding victim, he had compassion. He showed compassion. His faith evidenced itself in work, and he went to the man, and he poured on oil and wine on his wounds, and he bandaged his wounds, and he put the man on his own donkey, so he had to walk, and he took him to the nearest inn, and he nursed him back to health, and then he told the innkeeper, I have to go now, but when I come back, I'm going to pay you for any other costs that accumulated in caring for this man while I was gone. Radical sacrifices of his time, his energy, and his money to love someone that culturally would have been defined as an enemy because, remember, Jews and Samaritans hated one another. But he showed lavish, sacrificial love for a bleeding victim who needed his help, whose life was on the line. So what is our duty, friends? I believe our duty is to love our unborn neighbor. And we need to begin thinking and talking about the unborn child as a neighbor not as a fetus or a blob of tissue, but as a neighbor who's created in the image of God. But friends, sometimes loving our neighbors is costly, isn't it? Usually loving our neighbors hurts. And because Jesus defines neighbors as every human being, we can't create our own definition of neighbor to only love the people that are convenient to love. Neighbor, in fact, refers to every human being. So how can we love our unborn neighbor in this context? Well, we have to make the same type of sacrifices that the Good Samaritan did, sacrifices of our time, our energy, and our money to love our unborn neighbors lavishly. And it's costly. And sometimes it will be costly to love your neighbor. It may be costly for you because it will take time. You'll have to sacrifice your time to master the pro-life view. I don't expect you to remember everything I said this evening. In fact, I assume you won't. This was a lot of content. But we'll have it on audio and you can listen to it. And we have resources available for you at our website at ProLifeTraining.com and my own website, SethGruber.com. And I'm also on Facebook and social media for the purpose of equipping and training Christian leaders, laypeople, and young people to be a voice for the unborn. So take time to master the pro-life view. Go to our website, go to my website, go to my blog, read, research, take time to learn how to defend the unborn child's value and dignity. That's one way it may be costly for you. Secondly, it might be costly, friends, because it's not going to be popular. We live in a culture right now that is viciously committed to demonizing those that disagree with them. We live in a culture that it's essentially creating an entire class of thought police that will persecute Christian individuals who refuse to call evil good and who will punish you and demonize you and make you look like an intolerant bigot for simply maintaining that, can we not kill babies? So it may be costly for you because it won't always be popular. Whether you're in high school or college or you've already graduated and you're in the workplace, you will interact with people who do not share your convictions and beliefs on the value of unborn life. And you need to stand up and engage and stand for truth. While it might be costly, I want to encourage you that it's not going to be any more costly than the price that Jesus, the greater good Samaritan, already paid for you and for me. The good Samaritan is a representative of Jesus Christ. If we read the parable of the Good Samaritan and we think, I kind of think I'm the Good Samaritan. I'm really loving and sacrificial. Then you've missed the point of the parable. We are either the lawyer who goes to Jesus and says, and who is my neighbor? Or we're the Levite and the priest who's walking by and we see someone who needs our help and we go, ooh, I don't want to love that neighbor. We're one of those two individuals. Jesus is the greater good Samaritan. We're the bleeding victims, bleeding out on the side of the road in our own muck and mire and sin. And he comes to us and bandages our wounds and dies for us and sacrifices for us and shows us the way back to eternity. Why do I say this? Because any cost that we might have to count on behalf of unborn children is no greater a cost than Christ already counted and paid for you and for me. Proverbs 31:8 says, to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. And pro-life individuals love this verse because we rightly recognize the unborn child cannot speak up for themselves. But you know, as I was reflecting on this verse one evening, I I noticed the deeper truth about this verse. We are also those who are unable to speak up for ourselves. Not one of us could raise our hand on the day of judgment and say, <clears throat> Jesus, I can speak up for myself. I can vouch for myself. In fact, look at my perfect sinless record. Not one of us can do that. But 1 John 2.1 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. What's an advocate? Someone who speaks up. For someone else. So if Christ spoke up for us, when we were utterly incapable of doing that for ourselves, how can we not speak up for the unborn children in our midst who are being ripped limb from limb and sacrificed on the altar of convenience? We love because he first loved us. Not only do we love him because he loved us, we love neighbors because he first loved us. And what did Jesus say about loving neighbors If you love the least of these, you doing it unto me. So when we love our neighbors, we're not only responding in obedience to Christ's commands, we're actually loving him in the process. That's the cost and price that Jesus paid for you. So if Christ spoke up for us when we were utterly incapable of doing so, we have to equally commit to speaking up for the unborn children in our midst who cannot speak up for themselves. I want to read to you the final verses from the parable of the Good Samaritan. And instead of picturing the bleeding victim that got robbed in the parable, I want you to picture the bleeding unborn neighbor that you saw on that screen this evening. I want you to picture that bleeding victim instead. And I want you to hear the final words of Jesus in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Christ said, so which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the bleeding victim. And the lawyer said, well, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Friends, pray with me. Father, thank you that you are the author and perfecter of our faith, but you're also the author of life you breathe life into the human beings that you create and knit together in their mother's wombs. You say that we are fearfully and wonderfully made and that you saw our unformed substance as we were woven together in the dark of the womb. Jesus, we know that you do not make accidents and that you know and love the life that you create. So we need your Holy Spirit to fill us and give us the courage and conviction and passion and commitment to protect the unborn children in our midst who are created in the image of God. We need grace and truth. We need love and light to engage as ambassadors for Christ on behalf of those who literally cannot speak up for themselves. And we need you to show, you, show us how to do that well us and enable the individuals here this evening to remember this and leave more passionate, committed, confident, and equipped to defend life and be a voice for the unborn children in our midst. Seal these things in our heart. We commit these things to you, and we pray all these things in your name. Amen.
2: All right. So we got a few questions coming in. And that's, we have some of the few obvious ones. One, obvious ones, I guess, we could sh- should knock out, out of the park. So there's a question of uh, rape. What do we do in instances of rape? Like, eleven girl, eleven year old girl gets raped. What do you do in a situation of like that? Is abortion permissible?
0: Yeah. So this is usually the first argument that pro life individuals will get levied with by those who support abortion. And oftentimes, it's used as a tool to make you look like a moral monster, right? It's often like the worst, it's like this 11-year-old girl who got kicked out by her parents and then entered sex trafficking and then was pregnant and then was living on the streets. You'd force her to have a baby. So we have to be very careful and gentle when we talk about this issue because it obviously is so serious and it is personal, but often those who support abortion they create a really horrible circumstance to try to make you look disgusting for saying that she shouldn't have the option to obtain an abortion. So obviously, we first have to start with a position of complete understanding in regards to the emotional and psychological complexity. It is emotionally and psychologically complex to be young or to not be young. And to have endured the disgusting violation and trauma of rape, and then be left with a baby that is, half, that is the product of the injustice that you endured. That is obviously extremely traumatic, and I cannot imagine what that's like to go through. But emotional and psychological complexity does not equal moral complexity. And we can acknowledge the complex situation she finds herself in without saying that, therefore, it's morally complex. Does that make sense? So let's start there. Now, the Gumacher Institute, which is Planned Parenthood's statistical research branch, they report that less than 1% of the annual abortions in our country are performed on women who were raped. So, for those who say that abortion should be legal in circumstances of rape, I gently ask this question. Excellent, so so you're willing to join me in fighting to end the 99% of all other abortions that aren't from cases of rape? And what do you think the answer usually is? They say, well no, I think abortion should always be an option. Oh, well then why are you using the circumstance of rape if you believe it should be moral and legal in every situation. That's kind of intellectually dishonest. Just say what you really believe, which is that abortion should be an option from, through all nine months of pregnancy for any reason or no reason at all. Don't use rape to hide your position that you really think it should be legal in all circumstances, does that make sense? So it's really, it's kind of used as an attack to make you look like a moral monster. However, how, to, how do we actually deal with that? Here's the practical pro-life answer. the situation of rape, okay? The one sentence answer is this, and then I'll, I'll flesh it out. The unborn child should not have to suffer for the crimes of the father. How many parties, how many humans are involved in a pregnancy that arises from rape? Anyone? How many humans are involved in a pregnancy that arises from rape? Three. The mother, the rapist, and the unborn child. So let's, ans- let's, ans- let's ask the question, who should we give the death penalty to? Let's get real practical here. Who should get the death penalty? We would never give the death penalty to the mother. And rightly so. Why? Because she's an innocent victim. Did you know that in some Muslim countries, they practice something called honor killings? And they murder women who are raped because they have a shame culture that says if you were raped, you should feel shame about that. That's disgusting and immoral because she's an innocent victim. So, we would never give the death penalty to the mother, and rightly so. Should we give the death penalty to the rapist? Now, some people say yes, and I'm willing to have that conversation. I certainly think that they should be met with the full extent of the law and either be castrated or go to prison for life. For life. You should not have interaction with other women and children if you've raped someone. But did you know it's actually illegal in our country to give the death penalty to a rapist? That's, that's not the law. You can't give a death penalty to the rapist. So we would never give the death penalty to the mother. We don't give the death penalty to the rapist. Should we give the death penalty to the unborn child who's just as innocent as his or her mother? Notice how framing it that way provides a certain level of moral clarity. Who should, who should be punished? Who should be killed? And I would maintain that the baby and the mother should not have to suffer, and the baby should not have to suffer for the crimes of the father. If anyone would get the death penalty at all, if you could make an argument for anyone to get the death penalty, it would be the rapist. And we don't even give the death penalty to the rapist. And those who support abortion, most pro-choice individuals, friends, do not support the death penalty for rapists. But they support the death penalty for the baby. Think about that for a second. So that is the ultimate question that we have to ask, is who should be killed in this complex situation? I do not think that your value comes from the circumstances of your conception. And I have met pro-life speakers who were conceived in rape, and now they go around sharing their story. And you know what their biggest line is when addressing pro-choice audiences? They say, when you say abortion should be legal in the case of rape, it's like you're telling me I should be dead. Because our value as human beings does not come from the circumstances of our conception, does it? It comes from the fact that we were created in the image of God and have value as such. So how should we treat human beings that remind us of painful events? Would anyone support killing toddlers who were conceived in rape? I think not, but pro-choice individuals do support killing unborn children conceived in rape. As it turns out, friends, abortion is wrong for the same reasons that rape is wrong. Both involve the violent mistreatment of an innocent human being. And so we should treat all human beings with equal dignity and a right to life. Particularly if they 're innocent, which is the case with the mother and the unborn child, so that 's the basic response, and we can give that response while showing compassion and understanding to the horrific circumstances a woman finds herself in without justifying the killing of the baby for the crimes of the father So uh, what, what
2: about in an instance where the mother 's life is at in danger and if and abortion is the only
0: let 's say medical Right. Abortion to save the life of the mother. Right. So, just to be clear on the legal language that gave us abortion today in the United States of America, okay? there were two cases, Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton. Both passed in 1973. Both came from the Supreme Court. And actually, those cases said that abortion would be restricted in our country in the third trimester unless refraining from getting an abortion would endanger the life or health of the mother. Defining it that way enabled abortion to be legal through all nine months of pregnancy in our country because the courts didn't define the word health. They left it open to broad interpretation. In fact, the Doe versus Bolton legal case said that health can be defined as, ready, familial health, emotional health, financial health, psychological health, or a woman's age. So they just defined health so broadly that you could include financial health in that. So now, a physician, a woman who goes to a physician for an abortion, what physician is gonna say, I don't accept your definition of health. Abortion is a money-making business. Abortionists get paid a lot of money to kill babies in the womb. So she's just gonna say, well, I'm struggling financially, I'm really stressed out, and he'll go, oh, that, that's a health concern. So this gave us abortion on demand through all nine months of pregnancy. So. Pregnancy always affects your health. (laughs) Whether you're like my wife and you were vomiting every day, multiple times a day, or whether you're that woman who has the pregnancy glow and you're like, ah, that everyone else hates, pregnancy affects your health, period, right? Either negatively or positively. So, health reasons are not a good reason for abortion. But what about the life of the mother? That changes the conversation, right? Now we're not just talking about, well, it affects my health, we're talking about, what if she's going to die? That's the important question we need to examine. So, luckily, friends, because of medical and scientific advancements, we can almost always save the life of the mother and the baby. You should be grateful to live in 2019. There is almost no circumstance, almost none, where we can't save the baby and the mother. And that's pretty cool. Now, there is one circumstance that we are not yet able to save the mother and the child. And it's the most common circumstance where you have to end the life of the baby to save the life of the mother. And that's called an ectopic pregnancy. Now, as you know, and should remember from biology classes, but I'll remind you if you don't, fertilization or conception is the beginning of a new human being, right? But then that newly, that new human being travels through the mother's fallopian tube, one of the two fallopian tubes, and implants in the uterine wall, the uterus. And that's where the baby grows for the rest of the pregnancy. What happens in an ectopic pregnancy is that that new baby, that early embryo, implants in the fallopian tube. Now, the fallopian tube is very narrow. So as that baby begins to develop and grow, it will put stress on the fallopian tube. And if you don't do nothing, the pregnant mother's fallopian tube will burst, and that will kill her. And she will bleed internally, and the baby will die as well. So if you don't do anything, how many humans die, friends? Two. So the pro-life position has always been this. It's better to act to save one life than refuse to act and lose two lives. Now, do you remember how I defined the word abortion? The intentional killing of the unborn child. Are we intentionally killing the baby in the case of an ectopic pregnancy? What are we intentionally doing? Saving the life of the mother. So we don't even define the procedure that removes the baby from the fallopian tube as an abortion. We don't even define it as an abortion. There's two ways that you can save the life of the mother in that circumstance. You can perform a salpingectomy or a salpingostomy, and that means you either create a small incision with a knife in the fallopian tube and you take the baby out, or you have to remove the whole fallopian tube, leaving the mother with one fallopian tube. Even in the case of an incision in the fallopian tube to remove the baby, the woman will usually have scar tissue on the fallopian tube afterwards, and sometimes it can be more difficult to get pregnant. But my wife and I have friends, and uh, the, our friend, she had a ectopic pregnancy in her second pregnancy, and then went on to get pregnant with a, uh, a second child. Well, really a third, right? The second died, but a third, and then now she's pregnant again. And so she was able to get pregnant again. Because you live in 2019, you live in a world that is able to save the lives of mothers even when they have ectopic pregnancies. For millennia, women just died when they had ectopic pregnancies because there was no way to diagnose it. Now that rarely happens, thank God. So that is the one circumstance where we know beforehand that the mother's life is in danger and we can't save both mother and baby. Now there could be extenuating circumstances such as cesarean cancer, for example, that might, threaten the life of the mother. But usually, we can always save the life of the mother and the baby. It's only in the case of ectopic pregnancy that we have to choose. But notice, we're intentionally saving the life of the mother. We're not intentionally killing the baby. The death of the baby is a foreseen but unintended consequence, and so it's not defined as an abortion.
2: So there's a question as for people who want to get involved more in this movement? Or like, what can people do if they're facing, if they're working at a hospital or they're facing these ethical dilemmas every day of their lives? And the way that the systems are built, they have very little say or objection to what they're required to do as a student, as a nursing student, or you know, working in the hospital. What can they
0: do? in situations where they see kind of these unethical right. practices. We have conscious protections in the United States of America, and this current administration, thankfully, has, has um, moved to protect those conscious protections even more. So you cannot be coerced into performing or learning to perform an abortion if you're in the medical field, it's illegal. Um, and, and we have our, our current administration in large part to thank for that. So if you are in pre-med, or you are a nurse, or you are a doctor, or you are serving in that capacity in some way, shape, or form, it is illegal for your employer to require that you participate in an abortion. You can also opt out of learning how to perform abortions, and you have the legal, protected right to do so. And you can stand on those constitutional rights. So if you find yourself in that position, know that, do the research, and know that if they are pressuring you anyways, they could be facing a serious lawsuit. And there are excellent organizations that exist to take these cases and fight full time on behalf of Christian individuals who are being pressured to violate their Christian convictions. Yeah, so he was asking me to share a little bit about uh, my background and how I got involved in this. So my mother was a director of a pregnancy care clinic in Southern California where I grew up in the late 1980s. She directed a pro-life pregnancy center. She housed pregnant women who needed housing. She provided all the necessary care that they would need in order to choose life. She stepped down from that position when I was born in 1991, but we remained heavily involved with our local pregnancy care clinic, of which there are, by the way, about 3,000. Uh, in the united states of america pro-life pregnancy centers that don't perform abortions and actually give all the education to a woman she would need to make an informed choice so i did i did a regular walk for life i was a childhood fundraiser for the clinic and helped raise money and i understood that abortion was wrong from a very early age however you can't understand how wrong and how evil abortion is when you're eight years old so by the time i was a senior in high school i recognized that i didn't have the ability to articulate and defend my pro-life beliefs to my friends who didn't share my christian worldview or my view on human value. And so I did my senior project on abortion, which all seniors had to do a project to graduate with research paper, volunteer hours, and a presentation before a panel of teachers at the end of the year. When I told my English teacher I had selected abortion for my senior project as my topic, he told me, well, that's great, Seth, but unfortunately, the school has a certain list of topics that we do not allow seniors to select. And in the senior project guidelines it said, due to the controversial nature of this topic, it's very unlikely that your research paper would change anyone's mind. So I leaned into my English teacher, I shook his hand and I said, thank you. You can inform the principal that unless I'm allowed to do the topic of abortion, the school will have a lawsuit on their hands. (laughs) So, and I encouraged them to go take the US Constitution class that I was currently in to study the First Amendment. Um, And they immediately backed off. So there are times in our lives when we are facing the enemies of freedom and truth who want to coerce you into only articulating one belief, namely their belief. And we either have to stand and fight, or we have to surrender and choose the path of least resistance. And so if and when you're ever faced with that type of circumstance and decision, I encourage you to stand for truth, stand for your freedoms. You live in the most free country in the world, and if you take that for granted, we may not remain in the most free country in the world.
2: The next question is, what can guys or men do to take more initiative in
0: this discussion and what can they do, I guess? Yeah. yeah, good question. Well, a lot of the things that men can and should do are things that we really all should do, so I'll speak a little bit to what we all can do in defense of life, but it is, it is true that men have largely been silenced on the issue of abortion. Our culture, our government for years, uh, run by very far-left radical politicians, and the mainstream media have sent out this message that what, it's a woman's issue. It's about women's rights. Uh, no uterus, no opinion, right? We've heard all these kind of things about the issue of abortion. So firstly, I'll just speak to that objection because a lot of you men will get that, and you'll be told, well, you know, you don't have a vagina, so shut up, you know? So the interesting thing about pro-choice individuals who tell men to shut up on the issue of abortion is that they're perfectly fine with men speaking on abortion as long as those men agree with them. The pro-choice movement has no problem with men speaking on abortion as long as they're pro-choice men as long as they're cowardly men who support the ripping off of children's arms in their mother's wombs. Then, now you're a man's man because you agree with me that children should be killed in the womb if the mothers don't want them. That's not a masculine opinion, that's not a masculine approach, it's a cowardly, pubescent approach. And men of Christ are called to be leaders and protectors of women and children. But if it's true that men should be quiet on abortion because they don't have uteruses, then I always tell my pro-choice friends, so you agree that Roe v. Wade should be overturned immediately? And they go, what? No, I don't. Well, there were nine men in the Supreme Court in 1973, and seven of them voted on the decision that impacted women's bodies. So I guess you agree that it should be overturned and we should vote on Roe v. Wade again and make sure that there's females on the Supreme Court, right? Well, no, no, I believe Roe v. Wade, oh, okay, so you don't think, you actually think that men should talk on abortion as long as they agree with you. So you see, it's a very disingenuous, um, cowardly attempt to silence men because they love when men talk about abortion as long as they support the pro-choice position. But in terms of what men can and should do on the issue of abortion, firstly, never, never participate in an abortion. You as men are called to be leaders. You're called to be protectors. You're called to be providers. And participating in an abortion, whether by pressuring it, paying for it, or just shrugging your shoulders and say, I support you, babe, is not godly. It's not masculine. It's cowardly. Now, again, I told you, if you participated in an abortion, Jesus is just as eager to forgive the sin of abortion as any other sin. I don't say that to shame you. But that is the reality. We are called to lead. And you cannot lead if you support the killing of your own child. But in regards to what we can practically do, that's something that really all of us should be doing, and that's to speak up and defend life. Far too few Christians who are pro-life do anything to articulate that position to the larger culture. How many of you have been in a position where the topic of abortion came up and you were silent because you didn't know what to say, you felt you, had, you were stressed out, you were afraid you'd misspeak, or you didn't know what to say at all? That's many of us. So we need to learn how to defend life. In case you haven't noticed, the pro-choice movement is very loud. They are very committed. They are very engaged and animated in the fight to defend women's rights. And sadly, those in the Church of Christ who claim to be disciples of Christ often zip our lips at our schools and in the workplace when the topic of abortion comes up. We have to be as committed, loud, and engaged in defending life as the other side is to defending death. So firstly, learn how to communicate the pro-life position. Utilize the resources I talked to you about. Come and see me afterwards and start learning how to do that so you can engage. Secondly, support pro-life organizations or your local pregnancy care clinic that work full-time to save babies, change minds, and change hearts. Thirdly, make sure that your church, luckily this one does, is strong and confident on the issue of life. Or if you come here but you attend a different church on the weekend, make sure that the church you attend is committed to equipping the saints to defend life. So those are a few of the things that we can do. Obviously, you can volunteer at pro-life organizations. You can volunteer at pregnancy resource centers. um, And I have a whole little article on kind of what churches can do to be a meaningful witness against the evil of abortion that I can point you to as well. But that's how you deal with the men should be silent argument. And then those are some of the things that we can all do.
3: Thank you, Seth. We really appreciate this. This is awesome how God raises people who are so passionate, so well educated on the topic. I couldn't do <laughs> that kind of job, but he chose like in the scripture says that, we already cited this uh, verse, that your eyes has seen my unformed substance and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. What it says is that there is a purpose for you in life, for every one of you. Same as for Seth, you know, he has a calling from God to explain it very well so that we can understand. And I was sitting there, I'm like, wow, well, this is not a, such a controversial topic. I mean, this is very simple after I've heard him you know, speak of it. And I'm really pro-life. And, you know, and, and um, I was witnessing you know, to how God raises this movement. I was in New York Live, actually, uh, a month ago. Uh, on the Times Square, uh, and, and I saw the opposition. I saw how people get mad, how, you know, it's not just the, the battle of arguments. It's a spiritual battle, and Satan wants to kill. He is the killer. He is the murderer, so we, first of all, we'll be praying about this. Second, we'll be Maybe rea- re- evaluating how we, uh, you know, in the colleges and with our friends, what we say, how we say, uh, you know, things. Let's, let's be on God's side. You know, God t- shows clearly what is white and what is black in this issue. And, and, and one more thing. I know that some of you are sitting and you're like, well, it's not really for me in a sense. You know, I, I'm not making any kind of choices. I'm not planning on abortion. But I noticed, that, like with many other things, that God gives us food. He gives us training well in advance before something happens. And you never know. You will not. Sometimes you will have just a few seconds to make the right decision. So I really believe that God today warned some of you, some of us. He equipped us, and it's just our duty to move on and to do better research and to... Just do what we have to, like with that, you know, Good Samaritan. Whenever we see a need, let's help. So our prayer today, we'll pray for the speaker. We'll pray for Seth. We'll pray for our brothers. Thank you, Tim. Dennis had to leave. Uh, but uh, this, is, this is a very important topic for us. I, am I right? Yes? Did you learn something new today? Yes. I need to raise both my hands. All right, let's all stand up. Let's praise God and... Um, I know we usually pray for the needs. If you have needs or praise reports, just raise your hand so that we can pray for your praise reports. Anyone needs? All right, let's pray.